Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay? If you want me to answer your question, you have to send it to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I cannot guarantee that I will take your questions out of the comment section anymore. I'm not generally paying as much attention to that as I used to because I'm just getting so many <laughs> comments now that I can't guarantee I can keep up with all of them and that's why the change. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to tell you guys about, as I am wont to do as we do our weekly show here, is about my podcast this week with Dr. Clint Haycock. We did a doozy. We went over dominionism and why you should care about it, if, especially if you are a U.S. citizen. But uh, I think if you're anywhere in the world, you're going to want to know about this. It is quite a fascinating movement within the Christian world here in the United States and something that I think a lot of us should be paying maybe a little bit more attention to or at least know and be aware of the fact that this is going on out there, okay? So that podcast is out there for you guys and... Um, Boy, do we have some interesting stuff lining up for the future. I just today did a new Three Apostates podcast, so I'm anticipating that for this next weekend. Uh, so we'll see uh, what, what happens next week. But anyway, also, the last thing I wanted to do real fast is I wanted to remind you guys of critical merchandise. <laughs> These are things that you can get from my Critical Merchandise store at my shop.spreadshirt.com slash Shelton link, which is below in the description to this video and every video I've posted for years now. You can go and link to that, and, um, and you can get really cool critical thinking and Scientology-type merch. If you have seen my shirts about Xenu or some of my other Logic and Critical Thinking shirts and some of the other funny stuff I like to put together, all those designs that I've done are there on that site. Okay, now let's get on with your questions. Brent Rawson, from what I recall, you did not do any of the OT levels, but got pretty high up in the Sea Org. As a Sea Org member, did you outrank an OT5 or even OT8? Or did you have to address them as yes ma'am, no ma'am, or yes sir, no sir, since they were shelling out so much money? Or was it the case that there was no status difference since the OTs are not actually working for the church the way you were? Great question, Brent. And um, yeah, I've, sp I've spoken about the caste or the class system within Scientology because you have the public level and then you have the staff level and then you have the Sea Org. And that is, a, that is a, the system of, or the caste system of responsibility or how much, you know, influence, how much responsibility, how much work people are willing to do for Scientology. Um, I guess you could also say it's a matter of how, how indoctrinated they are, but that also translates over to the bridge to total freedom. So public, the public level is the lowest level, and it, the public will always be considered less than staff and staff are less than Sea Org members. Because Sea Org members are considered within the world of Scientology as making the ultimate commitment, the ultimate sacrifice. And everybody does know that joining the Sea Org is a sacrifice, that you are giving up all kinds of personal freedoms and ability to go to the movies whenever you want, go out to eat whenever you want, you know, basically be able to do almost anything whenever you want. I mean, they, when they recruit you, they talk about days off and vacations and having the ability to you know, um, do what you want or have jobs that you want and stuff. But um, I don't know, it's a little bit like 
uh, military recruiters that way. They'll tell you what you want to hear rather than tell you necessarily an accurate, fully, you know, accurate reflection of reality. Uh, anyway, because of that viewpoint, though, within the world of Scientology, public, of course, look up to Sea Org members, or at least they're supposed to. Uh, staff are supposed to look up to Sea Org members. Sea Org members, according to L. Ron Hubbard, are supposed to be uh, what is it? He lionized, he said, when they show up. They're supposed to be, you know, VIPs. They're supposed to be very important people uh, at the level when they walk into any church of Scientology or Scientology function or event or something like that. Sea Org or, oh, whoa, the Sea Org's here, right? Um, now, the Sea Org, of course, has kind of, you know, done quite a few abusive things over the decades to tarnish that reputation. This was stuff Hubbard was writing back in, you know, 68, 69, back when it was fresh and new, and, and people didn't even really quite get what the Sea Org was all about. Now it's, you know, now you can just go on the internet and find out all about it. And, um, and, it's a, and it's really, the Sea Org is the most abusive part of Scientology. It is the part, you know, it's the place where really nasty stuff happens. Not to say that nasty stuff doesn't happen at the staff level or the public level, because it most certainly does. Uh, we've seen all kinds of abuses at these levels, but, the, but, the, but it's undeniable and, and pretty agreed upon. It's not really a controversial position for me to say that the Sea Org is the, the worst of it. Um, so... The Sea Org has also gotten a reputation within the orgs of coming around and ripping off their staff, you know, yelling at the staff. I mean, nobody likes to be abused, and certainly nobody, as John Atak has pointed out so many times, nobody likes to be lied to, ever. And when, they, and when you find out you've been lied to, it, you know, it hurts, and it is a betrayal. And the Sea Org lies to staff all the time in order to get them to do things that they need them to do because the Sea Org member in question is getting pressure from above and he's got to get compliance to his orders. So he's going to say and do anything he has to within, you know, some, whatever degree of moral reason exists within him or her. Uh, and they're going to they're gonna do that. So, so there is now, I think, at this point, this, this you know, sort of caste system I keep describing is a bit tarnished, right? It's like, you know, not everybody has this, oh my goodness, you know, sort of yes sir, no sir, look to the Sea Org or to staff. So you'll find exceptions to all of this. It's not like this is universal and all Scientologists line up to everything I'm describing here, but I'm trying to give you a general sense of how the, how the system works. And so now that I've said all that, to sort of set this up, okay, so now to directly answer your question, no Sea Org member is ever going to think of themselves as less than or equal to an OT. Sea Org members, in fact, this is another little thing for you to think with in this, is L. Ron Hubbard actually defined a Sea Org member the same way that he defines an OT, an operating thetan which is a being who is at a knowing and willing cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form. Uh, or, or something equivalent to that, right? And uh, uh, that is an OT. That's what public people are paying their money to be able to accomplish is knowing and willing cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form. Well, a Sea Org member is just supposed to be there. Just boom, right? And you don't have to audit out all your body thetans, and you don't have to get a lick of auditing, and you don't have to get anything. You're just supposed to be that, and you're just supposed to assume that, well, what they call it in Scientology is that beingness, 
Okay, you have a, a job has a beingness, a, a, you know, a, a, a way you are supposed to be, a package personality, I guess you could say, but it's, you know, it's really just how you're supposed to be. And, um, and a Sea Org member is supposed to be making things go right, is supposed to be cause all the time, never effect, never, you know, I didn't know what to do, you know, I, I wasn't sure how to handle it, I didn't make it go right, I didn't get that job done, I don't have compliance on that order. None of that's acceptable in the Sea Org. The whole attitude is you can do it and you're going to do it. And, um, and this is not an entirely unhealthy attitude in some ways, but like we, you know, like every destructive cult, and as I've said many times, you dial it up to 11 and you make it crazy and you make it extreme. And that's what they do within the world of the Sea Org. There is certainly nothing wrong with picking yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, pushing, pushing yourself a little or being pushed a little in order to get stuff done. That's how we grow and that's how we get better and that's how we learn that we can accomplish things that we didn't think we could. So that in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you take it to the level that Scientology does and it becomes crazy. And that's the objectionable point with that. So anyway, a little bit of a, you know, a essay here on, on Sea Org versus public and, and staff, but I thought you'd like the additional information on this and I hope that that answers your question. Kevin Zay. I know you are a Star Wars fan, but I'm wondering if you also consider yourself to be a Trekkie. Have you seen the new Picard series? If so, what are your thoughts? Hey, thanks for the question, Kevin. I actually just watched it this afternoon. Um, I am a Trekkie. In fact, I like Star Trek more than I like Star Wars. But I have to be clear because, you know, there's so many different Star Treks now. There's so many flavors and brands of it that um, I have to be clear that I'm an original series guy. I'm old school, right? Of course I am. I'm 50 years old. I grew up on Star Trek reruns in the 70s and 80s, right, from original series. And then the Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, and then Wrath of Khan, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the ultimate, correct, and beautiful expression of everything that Star Trek embodies and is about. That, to me, Wrath of Khan is is it. It is the it is the best of the best. Um, but I also, I liked the setup of what happened in the movies with two, Wrath of Khan, three, Search for Spock, and four, The Voyage Home. Two, three, four, you know, those were, those were the hits for me. Um, and I, and to me, that is, you know, Star Trek for me is, is Roddenberry's original vision of a united mankind moving forward into exploration, not war, not violence, not let's tear each other down, but instead moving forward into a diverse society where everybody's kind of getting along. We've overcome our inherent violent tendencies or need for war or need for whatever, and um, and we have not a utopian vision, because there's still plenty of conflict and plenty of violence, but uh, uh, not, you know, not tribal here on, not interspecies, you know, sort of tribal nonsense. And I, I find, I found that to be a, a wonderful message. It's something I grew up on and believed in and uh, still do. And uh, that's why I think of Star Trek at a higher level than I do Star Wars. Star Wars is pure popcorn adventure. It was never meant to be anything more than that. Um, that's why, you know, Last Jedi tanked so bad is because, or had at least such controversial reactions, is because it went against the entire grain of what Star Wars was about. But I won't keep harping on that. Let's get back to Star Trek, and specifically Picard. I am not a Next Generation fan. 
I only saw probably about 20 or 30 episodes of Next Generation over, over the time that I've, you know, the, that I've been alive. And it was never really totally my thing. I, I didn't really like it when it was on air. I thought, you know, eh. Um, I thought that uh, even as a teenager watching um, the Q episode, the first Q episode with John Delancey, I thought that there was so much waste there. I thought they really had this had this amazing character that they had created. This this you know this character of infinite potential who could do anything and really didn't have much of a moral compass. And um, but I just anyway I just had problems with that and I had. You know, and it just didn't impress me that much, okay? And I was never a big Voyager guy. I was never a big Deep Space Nine guy. I never, I don't know that I've watched even a whole episode of either of those. So, so I'm not Trekkie in that sense, okay? And the new movies of Star Trek, I went in all in on, wanted to enjoy, did movie reviews of them even here on this channel. If you go back a ways, you can find them. And, you know, I, I look back on it now, the, the, the new movies, and I, you know, with Chris Pine as, as Kirk, Valiant effort, loved the production values, but, you know, the stories were definitely not great. And J.J. Abrams even admitted that. And having um, uh, Cumberbatch pay, play Khan was a huge miscasting. And I love Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, Picard, I say all that only so you know that I don't really have a whole lot of the mythology and lore of Picard. I don't have all the background. I know he was a Borg, and I know he had his ups and downs, and I know there was, you know, relationship things and stuff. I mean, I have a general sense of some of the events of Next Generation, but I don't have intimate knowledge of it the same way I do with some of the other stuff. So I went into Picard fresh, just kind of, okay, show me what you got. Let's see what's here, and let's just take it as it is. I know that there are probably tons of Easter eggs and tons of callbacks in the show that I missed or that went right over my head, and maybe if that's the case, then, you know, I just uh, need to go back and watch everything, and I don't think I'm going to do that. So I enjoyed the show for what they showed me in Picard, but I did feel a little lost. I thought there were callbacks to stuff that I definitely had not heard of at all, and, um, and I kind of wondered about that. Um, and I thought also that I just, you know, it is definitely a science fiction fantasy show, it's not trying to be very realistic. And, it, and it's funny how much work they put into the gadgets and the devices and the special effects and miss on how humans act <laughs> with each other. And much less with other races of, of beings from other planets, right? Romulans and who knows what else. So I find that it sort of misses for me. I, I want more, you know? I want more realism, I guess, uh, from my sci-fi, which of course is a silly thing to say, but it's where I'm at now. And I appreciate the, the effort and time put into um, good relationships expressed in a realistic way. And watching how Picard interacts with the people around him, I just thought, you know, there are 20 questions I would have asked uh, if I was him, that were not, that didn't appear anywhere on the horizon. Uh, people are dying. There's no police anywhere. Well, we watched the scans, and you were the only one there, and nobody's talking to him, right? I mean, it just, it just, we, you know, I don't want to give spoilers. So, I, you know, meh, it was all right. You know, I, I, I enjoyed the show. I'm a little curious where it's going to go. And they showed 
uh, one spoiler in the in the trailer of showing what's coming for the rest of the season. So we'll see where it goes. It didn't particularly hook me. I'm not like, oh my god, I can't wait for the next episode. Um, and I guess, you know, maybe I'm not the demographic necessarily for Picard because I was not a next generation guy. And I'm admitting that straight up, right? So I know my criticism of it is tainted by the fact that I don't have all that backstory. And that all being said, I think I've talked about this enough. I'm probably boring the hell out of you guys. So that was my, that was my take on Picard. I will definitely watch the rest of the season unless it goes off in some crazy ass direction that just doesn't make any sense at all. But overall... Eh, it's all right. Blake Nestle, Greta Thunberg. It's plain to see that humanity has had an impact on the ecology of the planet. However, I do not think the scaremongering done by some, AOC's 13 years till we're all dead springs to mind, does a service to the cause of environmental protection. While I do not intend to disparage any child, I also don't think any child has much to say of value about anything academic. Thus, I would deem anyone lining up behind a child, particularly in something as complex as climate science, to be rather foolish. I believe she is well-intentioned, but ultimately ignorant. And if one's goal is to advance a cause, I don't really see how championing a child who has yet to finish high school, much less the higher education necessary to have an informed opinion on this matter, will help that aim. In a discourse that requires scientific appeal, I see her primarily injecting sentiment and I feel like that's a disservice as opposed to a boon. Your thoughts? Um, I take great exception to almost everything you've said. Um, so let's start breaking it down. Um, Greta is not a scientist, and she's not claiming to be. Um, what she's protesting is inaction on the part of the people who should be acting. And that is where her voice is actually having an impact. She's not trying to convince anybody that climate change is real. She's not trying to stand up and convince people with the science that this is true. She's coming at this, as far as I understand, from the point of view that this is just true. And if this is true, or even parts of this are as true as appear to be, then why is it that you and you and you and you are not doing anything when it's in your power and in your zone of responsibility as world leaders to do something about it or do more about it. Because have we reacted with a correct level of response to uh, the potentially existential threat of man-made climate change? Not if it's real, we haven't. Not even close. And there is a little bit of a fantasy in your, <laughs> in your question where you say, um, oh, primarily injecting sentiment, and I feel like that's a disservice as opposed to a boon. I would like to ask you what movement of people has ever existed in the entire history of mankind that was based purely and only on reason and logic and rationality? There isn't one. Groups of people do not respond to rational discourse and logical reasons to do things. They have to have an emotional component or they just don't commit. You can understand why something is good for you, but until you take the 
commitment step of, of investing yourself in a thing and committing yourself to something, and that's an emotional thing, it doesn't connect with people, right? This is not how I think the world should be. This isn't what I like. I've been talking critical thinking for six, seven years now. If it was just a matter of pushing science and logic and reason on people, then our whole planet should be the most rational, Vulcan-type planet that ever existed. We understand logic, and we have for years. We understand reason. We understand science better than we ever have in our history. Yet, what do people do in general? Ignore it. Leave it alone. Don't think about it. Don't have time for it. A, a litany of things. But when you appeal to people's emotions, if you want to motivate people, if you want to inspire people, if you want to get people going on something, you have to make an emotional connection. I stand by that in any circumstance. You also said, I don't think any child has much to say of value about anything academic. I'm totally going to push back against you on that, and I'm actually just going to read what I wrote here because I, I think this encapsulates it best. I said, uh, it would do some good for you to take a look at some of the great names in history and see just how young some of them were when they started accomplishing great things as child prodigies in general. Dismissing children and young adults outright of being incapable of contributing anything significant to academia, which is what you said is the kind of biased nonsense that has stopped forward progress of our species. For every one of these child prodigies who could speak Greek or solve differential equations at age eight, how many more had their parents put the kibosh on their talent because they didn't think their children were capable of what they were truly capable of? I'm talking about Blaise Pascal, Maria Agnesi, Mar Mar Mary Curry, Felix Mendelssohn, John von Neumann, computer science anyone, and many others, all of whom went on as adults to push our knowledge of science and the arts forward. And there were many, many others, okay? Picasso was drawing uh, like Raphael as a child in school. I mean, children are capable of amazing things if sometimes if we just get the hell out of the way. So this blanket judgment that children have nothing to contribute to academia is frankly bullshit. And history proves you wrong. I'm not, this isn't my opinion, I'm pointing to actual historical uh, precedent here. Now, obviously, child prodigies and child geniuses are few and far between. I'm, you know, in, in a general sense, children need lots and lots of education and informed opinions are not possible for many of them until they get to uh, older teen or, you know, young adult ages. But, that's, but to just dismiss all of them out of hand because they're children is incredibly biased and very black and white thinking. Now, having said all that, is Greta Thunberg a child genius? I have no idea. I know she's on, this, on an autism spectrum somewhere, but that's all I really know about her as a person. However, I also know that she has put herself out there in a way that very few other people her age are even capable of doing. And she has shouldered the responsibility of trying to do something about a situation that could potentially be for her and every other person on the planet a truly existential threat to our entire species. So I have a little bit of a hard time with adults who look at her and go, who is she? Why should I bother listening to her? And, and, why, and children don't matter anyway. Children should be seen and not heard. You know, this kind of crap.
Well, if you want to go step up and take her place, please do. Uh, I think all of us need to step up a little bit more on this particular issue, actually, including myself, right? I am far from the person who can point any, you know, fickle finger of accusation at people that they're not doing enough about climate change, because I'm at the head of the line of people who are not doing enough about climate change. But the last thing you're going to see me do is try to tear down the people who are. And yes, I do feel a bit strongly about this. So. That's my take on that, Blake, and uh, you can take that however you want, but um, really at the end, all I'm really trying to say is anybody who has a voice and is speaking up on this issue because they are concerned about themselves and the rest of our species deserves to be listened to and they deserve to not be ridiculed because of their age, their gender, their race, their color, creed, whatever. Because we, if there is any issue that we have ever faced that has truly something to do with all of us, it's climate change. And at the end of the day, even if the science is wrong, <laughs> you know, is it really that big <laughs> of a uh, problem that we are, you know, pushing forward on alternative energy sources that are better for our environment and better for us? I don't think it is. I think we should be pu pushing great guns on this stuff anyway. So, that's my take on that stuff. You know, take it or leave it, agree with me or not, but that's where I'm at. Kathy Reynolds. I have been a nurse for more than 30 years and remember being very nervous when I started around people having mental health problems. In my early years as a nurse, I tended to put my focus on the physical being and what I could do to heal the physical ailments. Now I have a very different view as I see the need to treat the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. In looking at L. Ron Hubbard, I see a person whose physical body was being damaged by his own mind. I really think as an outside observer, he went crazy in the end. Am I wrong in thinking this could also happen to David Miscavige? He appears to have begun a spiral that could end in madness. What do you think? Kathy, I agree with you completely. Um, you know, L. Ron Hubbard definitely suffered from a number of conditions. Uh, personality disorders as well as actual mental health issues and physical issues including strokes, brain damage. I mean, there's so many things wrong with that guy's body. It was amazing that he lasted as long as he did. And um, I think that David Miscavige, from what I've heard, of course, he has a drinking problem or at least he really, really, really likes to drink. And um, we know that he likes to beat on people and he has various sociopathic tendencies. And so, yeah, of, of course I think that he could easily descend into full madness. Uh, not necessarily a given. There are no ways that we can predict this kind of behavior. We haven't even gotten a, when you really dig down into the weeds, it's hard to even define what is mental illness, right? So, you know, we've still got a lot, a lot, a lot of work to do on this. This is, none of this stuff is settled science by any stretch. So, um, but in terms of the general sense of your question, could David Miscavige get significantly worse and as a result do even more horrible, awful things to those around him or to the organization as a whole? Yeah, absolutely he could. Think people don't tend to, I mean, for as far as I know, people don't tend to get better as they get older, they, you know? So, uh, I, you know, I, again, I'm sure exceptions to every rule, but I don't think David Miscavige is going to be one of those exceptions. James Hacker. What do Scientologists believe about animals? I know that animals play a part in Scientology's dynamics, but I'm unsure how they factor into the belief system. Do they have thetans? And if so, is it believed they reincarnate? 
Can they spiritually evolve and become human? <laughs> okay. No, they don't spiritually evolve and become human. Let's, let's get that out of the way right away. But Scientologists definitely have things about Thetans occupying their pets. Uh, Hubbard had talked about, in a, Hubbard really only talked about this in a couple places, just sort of passing commentary, really. He never really did any deep dive on animals versus humans. He said, you know that famous picture everybody laughs at of Hubbard with the e-meter and the tomato, and he's got the electrodes plugged into it? Hubbard claimed that that was being done in order to determine whether the, the nature of life itself the thing that creates life in a tomato is that different from the kind of thing that creates life in us. And he said that his answer was, no, it's not. It's not, the same. it's not different. So theta, as this life force, is sort of this, you know, it's an intangible quantity. It's not something that, you know, it's only something you can sort of conceptualize because it doesn't exist as a physical universe reality. It's not an energy field. It's different. It's different from matter, energy, space, and time in, a, in, in that it, 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 the only real concept you can get of it is that it exists and it can impact or change or modify or even create things in the physical universe, but it is not itself of or in the physical universe. It only has an awareness of being within the physical universe. And that's a little bit of a head turner, you know, thought twister, but... I reconciled myself to it long ago, and I don't think it's that hard of a concept to get. So, uh, I mean, one conceives in Christianity and many religions of gods as being separate from, but within and aware of and able to manifest and modify and change and destroy the physical universe. But nobody would think God, if the physical universe, it, you know, collapsed, nobody would think that, that God's dead. God's outside of it all. Well, in the same way, so is Theta. Not just Thetans as entities, individual entities, which Hubbard never explained anywhere that I ever saw, and maybe somewhere he did, but I never saw it, what the difference is between like this body of Theta or, or you know, Theta imbuing life into animals, ants, to whales, to dolphins, to dogs, to cats, versus Thetans, which are individual entities, which I guess are Theta, bodies, uh, which run us, which are, which are us. So this is a little unclear, right? And you can see it kind of gets a little tangled up kind of quickly. You start going, well, what about this? And, you know, ironically, I just never uh, saw anybody ever ask Hubbard about this. So people just kind of make up their own stuff. So I've talked to plenty of Scientologists over the years who were positive that their cat had, had a Phaeton there or their dog. Um, because you see, of course, with dogs and cats, they have specifically been bred over the, over the centuries. Dogs and cats have, have genetically been modified to empathize with us and us with them. This is why we naturally see emotion in their eyes and, we, and in their faces and things, right? We assign all kinds of things to dogs and cats that may or may not actually be there. Right, because their brains are only capable of you know of certain thoughts and uh, certain expressions and certain emotions. I'm not going to sit here and say dogs and cats don't have emotions. I'm not making that argument. I'm just saying that their range is significantly limited compared to us. 
So, um, you know, so, so Scientologists will assign the theta quantity to that rather than think about their, you know, thinking anything about their neurons or their brains or anything. Scientologists don't care about any of that. So, um, anyway, so I saw, you know, I saw a lot of that in Scientology, but it's, um, that's about as far as they really think about it, you know. Uh, they don't really have to put too much more thought into it than that. Now it is time for Flash Answers. Tyler Simmons, how would you react if Donald Trump revoked Scientology's tax exemption? I know this is an extremely unlikely event. I still wouldn't vote for Trump, but if he took away their tax exemption, that would mean he finally got something right for once. What do you think? All right, well, I think Donald Trump has uh, signed into policy a few things that I agree with, and so I don't think that just because Donald Trump did it, everything automatically has to be wrong. I'm, I'm actually not in that camp. Uh, I look at Donald Trump as this malignant narcissist, and that's my problem with the guy, because I don't trust him and I can't. I, you, you can't trust narcissists. Now, that all being said, ha if he were to, in this incredibly unlikely scenario, uh, which I truly believe is never going to happen. Uh, but if he were to somehow arrange for Scientology's tax exemption to be revoked, I'd probably be pretty happy about that. On the other hand, I have to point out that it's not the president's job to be assigning tax exemption to any organization or church, and it would actually disturb me quite a bit if the president was personally ordering some group, any group, to have its tax exemption revoked just because he or she thought that that was the right thing to do. I would want the IRS to revoke tax exemption after an investigation, hopefully one that would lead to a criminal investigation by the FBI into the kind of abuses and financial shenanigans that Scientology has gotten up to under L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige. That would be the way for that investigation to go. So at the end of the day, I wouldn't particularly be crediting Trump with anything anyway, or any president. I don't care, Dem, Republican, black, white, red, green, whatever, right? That's not the body, the, you know, that, that person is not the one, I think, who should be determining that. But I do think, of course, that Scientology's tax exemption should be revoked because they do not deserve it, and they violate um, public policy and common sense and the law on a daily basis. So there you go. Jim Gattel. Have you heard anything from Shelley, Marty Rathbun, or Karen Powell in the last 12 months? No, not a word or peep from all three of them. Michael Yoder. I noticed you have a tattoo on your left forearm. What is it, and is there any significance to it? Yes, this tattoo says, if you can see that there, it's chaos, be kind. And basically, this is my motto in life. I do not always live up to it at all. I, I, I break my own rule all the time, and I always regret it. But I literally got it tattooed on my arm as a reminder, <laughs> and as a goal, and as something that I think we could all learn something from. So I got it from Pat Oswalt, who shared it in a uh, stand-up that he did after his wife had died, and he had mourned her loss, and I believe this was something that she had told to him. And I found it to be probably the four, well, if not the, certainly one of the best um, arrangements of four words that I've ever heard. So uh, that's, that's what that's on there for. 
Okay, folks, thanks for coming around and watching me gab on here about all this. Really appreciate your viewership and your support. And uh, if you do want to support this channel, by the way, directly, financially, you can do so through Patreon. Link below. Uh, I hope if you find this channel entertaining, informative, and um, educational that you will do so because it's you guys, the fans, who are really keeping me going and who keep this channel going. And I have so much to do this year and so many things to share with you guys. And I really, really look forward to, uh, to doing so. And thank you very much for uh, allowing me to be part of your life and help you out uh, or educate you or entertain you. <laughs> All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.